High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by MyMAT. MyMAT Clinic empowers people to manage their recovery from addiction in real life. If you or someone you know has an opiate use disorder, help is just a text away with individualized treatment plans. Learn more by visiting MyMATClinic.com. That's MyMATClinic.com. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for an MAT conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. MAT stands for Medication-Assisted Treatment. MAT medications are directed at treating various addictions, such as alcohol use disorder, nicotine use disorder, and opiate use disorder. All those addictions have medications that can assist. On the horizon are promising medication to treat methamphetamine addiction and cannabis addiction. However, they are not yet FDA approved. We talked about some of these new innovations on other High Truth episodes that you may want to check out. Currently, there are three FDA approved classes of medications to treat opiate use disorder. Each one acts very differently on opioid receptors. The first one is methadone. Methadone is a drug that's been around for a while, and it acts upon the opioid receptor to activate it just like heroin or fentanyl does. It has a long half-life and needs to be very carefully monitored. The second drug is buprenorphine. It's a drug that partially acts on the opioid receptor, not completely. Suboxone is a combination of buprenorphine and naloxone. Naloxone is the opioid reversal agent, and that makes suboxone a little safer in terms of preventing overdose since it has buprenorphine and naloxone in it. The third medication is naltrexone. This is a blocker of the opioid receptor acting opposite of what methadone does. And interestingly, um, naltrexone is also proved to treat cravings for alcohol. And with that brief introduction to medications that help with opiate use disorder, we will hear our questions of the day. Hi, my name is Lauren. Uh, I'm a person in long-term recovery. I have been in abstinence-based recovery for almost five years. I struggled with heroin addiction for about eight to ten years, and uh, I was mainly intravenously using. So um, my experience with opiate addiction runs pretty deep. I, uh, I really like hearing this podcast and listening to what everyone has to say because I like seeing um, how people are thinking that are on the other side of this, uh, like healthcare providers um, and what they're doing to try and improve uh, and help the effectiveness of helping people like me get sober and stay sober. 
So I'm, I'm curious as to what is the current best standard in addiction treatment, um, long-term, short-term, what's been you know most effective for most of us. And then I'm also curious if anything is being addressed with uh, bridging the gap of seeking help and actually getting help. Uh, what I mean by that is there's a very small window when people like me want to get sober and we go, we reach out to the emergency department or urgent care or a physician or a psychiatrist uh, and say like, hey, I have a problem and I need help. And a lot of the time, at least in my experience and uh, friends that I have in recovery, the experience is, that's great, we'll help you. We have a bed for you in 13 days. And so that 13 days can be really agonizing and long and um, oftentimes by the time that bed is available, this doesn't seem like a great idea for us anymore. Uh, most likely we are suffering some sort of withdrawal, physical or mental, and um, staying in the misery would be better. And so it kind of just prolongs us getting um, the help we need. So I, I think it would be great if at some point, you know, you could go somewhere and say, hey, I need help. And they were like, that's great. You can stay here or we can take you to this facility where you can stay in a safe place uh, and maybe start a medical detox immediately until we can get you into a long-term facility um, for treatment. So yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm hoping you can answer my questions and I look forward to hearing your responses and Dr. Lev, I'm so grateful that I've been introduced to you and that I am able to listen to this podcast and uh, expand what I know, um, you know about addiction. So thank you so much. Thank you, Laura, for your question, for your passion, for your openness, for a person living in recovery uh, with uh, a journey of your own and your own opinions of what's working and what's not working in terms of addiction. To have that discussion and answer your question, I have Dr. David Dahimi. Dr. Dahimi is an addiction medicine specialist and anesthesiologist. He is founder and medical director of My MAT Clinic, specializing in MOUD, medications for opiate use disorder. To learn more about Dr. David Dahimi, check out the High Truth show notes. Dr. David Dahimi, welcome to High Truths. Oh, thank you for having me. Dr. Dahimi, you're an anesthesiologist and an addiction medicine specialist. Uh, tell us about that. How does that come about? Why? How did you choose anesthesia and then switch to addiction medicine and still do both, actually? I, yeah, I still do both. Um, well, as an undergraduate at UC San Diego, um, I ended up majoring in psychology, but it was like, more neuroscience than behavioral psychology. And actually, Dr. Koob at the time was one of my uh, lecturers, and he's gone on to NIAAA and become a big researcher uh, in addiction. And um, some of the classes around uh, mental health and addiction and how they, they intersect were of particular interest to me. So then I go on to med school and end up um, gravitating towards anesthesia. Uh, I still practice anesthesia. I love anesthesia. Um, obviously the pharmacology aspect and treating addiction, there's an overlap there in anesthesia. We spend a lot of time, you know, preventing harm and preventing death to our patients who are undergoing, um, sometimes very dangerous surgeries and, you know, addiction medicine, especially my practice is mostly focused on opioids, uh, and nothing is 
nothing in addiction is killing more Americans a year than, than the opioid epidemic. And we have these very effective treatments uh, that can prevent overdose and greatly improve the chances of somebody staying in recovery and um, not relapsing, uh, but we're not using them to the extent that we should be. So I'm 50% addiction medicine, 50% anesthesia. There's overlap between the two. And um, yeah, and I love both. That's great. Um, so I have a question here from Laura. Laura is a beautiful woman who's living now in long-term recovery. She's overcome a lot of adversity. And her question is about um, probably the system we have for providing care for people who have an addiction. And her main concern is when you 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 suffer from this disorder, you finally come to the point in your life that okay, I want to I want to I want to get treatment. And then you're told, well, you know, we don't have a bed for 14 days and you can't get a clinic appointment for a couple of weeks. And there's a big gap there where people need a safe space or medical detox or something, because by the time 14 days pass, it's like, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. What do you think about that? I think Yeah, it's it's totally true. And, and it's really painful because it's a number of things here. Number one, uh, if you don't have good health insurance, the chances that you even have uh, options for for evidence-based um, residential type recovery where they can treat your underlying mental health disorder, your uh, substance use disorder, and give you behavioral treatments that have been shown to be have good evidence like cognitive behavioral therapy. Without private insurance, the chances that you get that comprehensive care is close to zero. And even if you do have insurance, you know, oftentimes a person can't navigate between like what is a good evidence-based program versus a program that's just set up to, 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 to you know, essentially provide housing and AA or NA-based recovery without any real evidence-based treatment in there or medications. That's hard for people to navigate. If you're somebody in the community who's looking for treatment for opioid use disorder, at, which is by definition for many a life-threatening disorder, I mean, any use at any time could result in overdose and death. And you call a doctor's office or you call a psychiatrist's office, the chances that you get seen within several days even is extremely low. And for a person who's desperate looking for that kind of help, I mean, they have no choice but to continue using. So there are these windows of time where people want help and they're desperate. And what we have found is that if when they ask for help, we don't immediately provide it, make it so that they can be seen within hours uh, tops, then often we don't ever see that patient again. They're gone because they have no choice but to continue using. And so we are not set up to to rapidly address people's needs when in the time of crisis, when they're asking for help. And many of them end up in our ERs, as you know, and and unfortunately, they don't get they don't often get treated there either. You know, maybe if they've overdosed, they, they're, you know, they're treated to, to make sure they're they're stable. But but essentially, they're they're sent right back out. Maybe with a couple I of pamphlets. We've made, we're making ways in that. I, I I agree with you and with Laura that our system is not quite operational to where it should be. I do think that we need to invest in that in-between stage when you're ready to make it and when 
you know, like, you know, there's a lot of places where people can go use drugs, but we don't have a lot of places where people to go to when they want to stop using drugs. I would say that that's the big gap we have in our, in our society. Our emergency departments are, are coming around. I don't know if you're familiar with the bridge program. Oh, very. Yeah. So most of the hospitals um, have that. So people come into the ER 24 seven and say, you know, I want to get treatment and we're able to provide medications short term, just a bridge supply, right? Or, um, you know, for a week or now we're doing even two weeks because it does take that long to get it to, to clinic. Um, and uh, another thing we're going to start doing soon is having peer navigators also help when people come in and, and, and have that warm handoff for treatment. So it's not perfect, but we're definitely a lot better than we were a few years ago. We're moving in the right direction. There remains I think a, a big gap, like like Laura said, where you know they people need a safe place or medical detox to get them to the next stage, and and we don't have that. Yeah, and it's very highly variable between ERs. We have a couple here locally, and um, our hospital, we I help them get the bridge program going, but the the bigger one down the street, they don't have any type of navigator. They have no bridge stuff going on. Nobody's getting anything more than maybe one dose of buprenorphine. And I think the better programs like yours and maybe Highland Hospital, you know, where they get people treatment right away to stabilize the cravings. I want to see a lot more of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think we're moving towards that. But you have your own MAT clinic where you provide various medications to treat um, opiate use disorder, right? If if people yeah. have a alcohol use disorder or benzodiazepine use disorder or anything, do you do that too? Or it's really just for it's, opioid use? It's, uh, I would say 95% opioids, but we do treat uh, patients with alcohol use disorder with a long acting injectable medication and, and or um, you know some other medications that have been shown oral ones uh, to help decrease cravings. But the grand majority of our patients are patients suffering from opioid use disorder, moderate or severe opioid use disorder. And what we love is to put them on long-acting injectable medication. Um, because in our, we do both sublingual buprenorphine, but the long-acting buprenorphine works fantastic. The way our, our clinic works is somebody reaches out to us, usually by, by word of mouth, or they found us on our website or whatever. And they, they, there's a texting line. They can either call or text. And my nurse practitioners will often try during working hours to respond to them within an hour. And we set up a telemedicine visit within hours of them reaching out. And they are on buprenorphine then sublingual um, almost immediately. We, we walk them through how to initiate uh, the buprenorphine so that they don't put themselves into withdrawal. We have a prescription waiting for them at a local pharmacy to them. And then we take their insurance information and we order them the long-acting injectable, which is covered by most insurances, including Medi-Cal. And that is shipped to our office. And then we see that patient in person about a week later. And that's when they get their first dose of uh, monthly uh, Sublocade or uh, the new one, Brixati. Interesting. So there are different medications that... Um, treat opiate use disorder. We kind of talked about it in the intro for, for this show. 
Um, interesting, you probably use naltrexone, right, for the alcohol use disorder and the right. obesity disorder because there's overlapping. But how do you, so I have a little sophisticated audience. They know what buprenorphine is. They know what methadone is. They know what naltrexone is. How are you choosing one over the other? Okay, so I can't prescribe methadone because I'm not a federally licensed opioid treatment program. That so that one out. This is another this is another barrier to treatment in the United States, right? We have this effective drug methadone, but there aren't methadone clinics in most places. And methadone comes with a lot of um additional obligations and barriers for patients, like daily and, and, and dangers. I, I think and dangers, exactly. That that in around you know 2010 with the prescription opioid epidemic, the number one opioid that would uh, kill by itself without other drugs is methadone. And it has a much higher half-life yes. and, and potency than the other drugs. So it, it's uh, there's probably reasons to have some caution. That's right. Because it's a full opioid agonist, meaning that if you add another opioid on top of it, they are synergistic and they increase the risk of overdose. Um, so methadone's off the table for me, no matter what. So now I'm left with uh, naltrexone and with buprenorphine, and they both come in, you know, oral or sublingual formulations, and they both come in a monthly uh, injectable formulation. Well, we used to do a lot of what's called Vivitrol, the injectable naltrexone, because if you give someone oral naltrexone, they just stop taking it. Um, we used to do more. Um, Why is that? Why do they stop taking it? Um, both alcohol and and uh, opioids stop taking it just because I don't think it provides enough craving relief for people with opioid use disorder. But here's the real big problem. Most all of our patients are actively using when they talk to us. And I cannot initiate naltrexone, a full mu receptor antagonist, until that person's been fully detoxed. So to, that's like a week uh, for most, even more for some, right? So if you were to initiate naltrexone prior to that, you could put them into severe precipitated withdrawal. So that's not a great option for most people that are just calling us because to tell them, well, you need to detox entirely off the opioid you're using, that's, in, that's next to impossible for them unless they're in some program where they can have, you know, a medically assisted detox. So then what we're essentially talking about is buprenorphine. That's the the drug we prescribe, which is in the middle between methadone, a full agonist, and naltrexone, a full antagonist. It's a partial agonist at the mu receptor. So it binds the receptor, opens it enough to alleviate withdrawal and craving, but not so much uh, to cause respiratory depression. And the other thing I love about buprenorphine is that it binds that receptor so tightly that even if people do relapse and they start using other full agonists, even fentanyl, it does not push the buprenorphine off the receptor very easily. So buprenorphine kind of wins the battle for the receptor. So you, you have all these features, craving relief, high binding affinity, relapse and overdose prevention built in all in one molecule. And then on top of that, we have a once a month version that's fantastic because for somebody who's new into recovery, giving them a prescription for 30 days where twice a day they have to make a good decision around taking that medicine on time, not losing it, not more than prescribed, and all the decisions that go along, that's a lot of decisions for a person new to recovery, whereas one decision a month, come to get your shot, is 
much easier for them to handle. So if per, your patients call in, they're actively using, they made the decision, I want to stop. You treat their immediate withdrawal with uh, buprenorphine uh, and say, come to the clinic in a week and we'll do this monthly injection. So they're right. giving a bridge. During that one week, they know how do they adjust their dose? Um, ah, yeah, they, we are in conversation with them via our texting line or, or through phone calls because they do have questions. They, they need some help about like, okay, I took the dose you told me and I'm feeling better, but I'm still not, I'm still not feeling perfect. I'm having cravings still. So we coach them on how to escalate up their dose and basically provide a lot of uh, moral support and, and encouragement um, we'll often prescribe some other medications that help with symptoms like muscle cramps, um, insomnia, uh, you know, some of the other side effects you get what, with opioids. What other, what other medications do you prescribe? Oh, things like Robaxin uh, for muscle aches, Clonidine, which helps with um, some of the, some of the withdrawal symptoms that you have because, uh, you know, when you're in withdrawal, you have a lot of adrenergic uh, tone. Uh, epi and norepinephrine and clonidine helps tamp that down, reduces some anxiety as well. Um, sometimes we'll, we'll we'll give them a sleeping aid like a trazodone or a low dose Seroquel as well, just to try to make this week um, more comfortable for them. So but Suboxone by itself doesn't do that. You still need it does. It, it is it is ninety percent of the of the issue, um, but. Our patients aren't often using just one drug. They are, they, um, they, they use a lot of other drugs. Yes, so they're also on methamphetamine, I imagine. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of methamphetamine overlap, THC overlap, benzo overlap. Um, these are all things that are going along with the, the opioids, but usually the number one thing, uh, their drug of choice, and the reason they're in severe withdrawal is the opioids. Right. And dosing, how, are you, there's dosing, micro-dosing, micro-dosing, there's all sorts of controversies go start yeah. really slow or start really high. Things have changed yeah. as people change from heroin to fentanyl, which is more potent. So maybe you need more. What is, what is your philosophy? So there is a lot of discussion around, you know, this, what we're talking about fentanyl, by the way, is we're not talking about pharmaceutical fentanyl. I use that every day in the operating room. It acts very predictably, and it's a very good drug for, for painful surgeries or procedures that last a very short period of time. Like you, it, It'll predictably wear off. What we're talking about is illicitly manufactured fentanyl. And it's not just one. There's like 50 or 100 of them that have been identified, and these are coming out of Mexico predominantly, and these fentanyls are of various potencies and various durations of action, like some last longer than others. And these cartels are constantly tweaking these chemicals to try to make them more potent and what have you. And by the way, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't tell everybody that for all intents and purposes, the entire illicit drug supply is contaminated. Cocaine, methamphetamine, fake pills, fake Xanax, fake Percocet, fake Adderall, all full of fentanyl. Any drug use can result in overdose deaths. So we'll, we can get back to that, but that's kind of like, you have to tell people that. Absolutely. Anyways, there's a, 
Some doctors and patients have reported that inducing a patient onto buprenorphine when they're using fentanyl is complicated because it's lasting longer and, you know, that's where the whole idea of microdosing comes in. Like maybe you want to give them smaller doses of, of buprenorphine initially to kind of like not put them into precipitated withdrawal. You know, to be honest, I have not, our practice has not seen this. Um, we see that people are anxious, um, that sometimes the fentanyl is lasting a little bit longer, but it's not like methadone, for example, where five days, it's very hard to get somebody onto buprenorphine for five days, depending on their dose, because it's so long acting. I have not seen that. I mean, maybe a little bit longer acting than heroin in some cases, but it is not preventing us from in putting most people onto buprenorphine within 24 to 48 hours of them calling us. We just have to let them go into a bit of withdrawal and they we we caution them if you use this medication before you're actually feeling physically bad yep. then you will be then you'll be calling us with a worse problem right yeah so we manage it it's I not it's not that hard they, they patients know that right I, I i i do that all the time like i can several patients yesterday same story like start this only once you start feeling bad yeah. um but uh, the macro dosing using more uh, like we used to start with eight milligrams of Suboxone um, for heroin and opioid prescriptions. But now that most people are using fentanyl, um, the thought is instead of starting with eight, start with 16. Yeah, so we'll typically get somebody up to 16 rather quickly. We're, we're for all intents and purposes, we're macro dosers in our clinic. Mm -hmm. And again, by using some of the other drugs, we can kind of like, smooth out this induction course. And if we give a patient medication, their initial eight milligram dose, and they complain that it's not working or they're having worse symptoms, we simply go up very quickly. The great thing about buprenorphine is very safe drug. It's really hard to hurt somebody. Have you had patients who come in and get the injection and now it's in them for a month and they can't get it out and they don't like it? I've, I've no. had patients come in the emergency department for that. They don't like, uh, some of them don't like the fact that there's a bump in their abdomen or it's itchy or there's an injection site reaction that's a bit red. But our patients that get the injection, we have not had a single one say, I want to get this out of me. Most everybody said this is much better than any buprenorphine that I've ever tried, the sublingual form. Um, my cravings are massively improved. I'm able to focus on other things. So we haven't had them come back and say, this was a big mistake. Um, I'm and sure those you, patients exist, but we haven't seen it. Have you changed your um, dosing because of the higher fentanyl potency and, and use of so somebody's using more fentanyl per day, you know, two grams instead of one gram a day? Do you give a higher dose of, of uh, the injectables? So up until recently, we only had two dosing cho choices. It was sublocade and it came in 300 milligrams or 100 milligrams. And with, with almost um, every patient, they would begin on 300 milligrams, uh, the high dose. And we would maintain that for no less than two months. If a patient was already stable on sublingual buprenorphine and it was a relatively low dose, like 12 milligrams or less, 
we might do a 100 milligram sublocate for that person. But everybody who's coming to us actively using fentanyl, um, which is by, by the way, is just about everybody because um, fentanyl is like 80% of, of the overdose deaths now. Um, we start them at 300. And sometimes patients will go down to 100 and we've had to boost them right back up to 300 the next month because they're having breakthrough cravings at 100 milligrams. Right, right. Better to be on, better be safe than have, have that potential for relapse. Um, you talk about, you also treat patients who are pregnant. How does that work? So I, uh, at my hospital, I do a fair amount of labor and delivery as an anesthesiologist. And my, my head nurse, Jeanette Spivey, who I started this whole, you know, addiction journey with um, in 2011, she's also a labor and delivery nurse. And her, this all started one night with her, her talking to me at midnight about her son and his heroin problem and how they tried all these different things. And she was mentioning the medications we're talking about. And I'd never even heard of these. So Anyways, she and I still work together today on labor and delivery, and um, we've had many patients, uh, you know, they just end up pregnant and they have an opioid use disorder, and many of them haven't disclosed this to their, their OBGYN um, out of fear of uh, being judged or fear of CPS. Huh? Have their baby taken away? Right, it's a it's the CPS related fears and and the evidence for women in pregnancy is that methadone and buprenorphine are the gold standard of treatment, and the earlier that we 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 address any active illicit use in the pregnancy, the better the moms do and the better the babies do. Also, the neonatology people they know that the the baby is going to have some neonatal uh, abstinence syndrome or neonatal withdrawal. And we can prepare for all of this. And these medications, uh, methadone and buprenorphine, do not hurt the baby, um, not even with breastfeeding. So we, we put on our website, we want moms to know that we're a safe place for them, that there's no stigma, there's no judgment. We understand that life is hard and that you can be pregnant and still be using opioids. But what we want you to do is come to us so that we can put you on to these legal medications and help guide you through your um, pregnancy, um, at least from the substance use side, and work together with your OBGYN so that we have a plan so that you and your baby have a safe outcome. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it's a great motivator. I mean, I've met a lot of people who, when they become pregnant, they're responsible for another life. That's a great motivator for it's them. A, it's Just because you have a problem with drugs does not mean you don't care about your baby. And one of the things we should talk about is just all of the stigma that exists within substance use um, and addiction and mental health. You know, I look at. So addiction. let's talk about that because okay. there's, there's some controversies and we can like hit now some of the, the controversies in, in, in uh, addiction medicines and the okay. issue of drugs. So stigma is one of them. So I hear um, we shouldn't have stigma. And my listeners already know what I'm going to say. Uh, I say we don't want stigma on the human being who has a medical problem. We want to have, you know, no judgment when it comes to treatment and getting you better and getting you um, treatment like like you had. If you had diabetes or asthma or something else, we're not going to shame you because 
you have a medical condition. On the other hand, if you think about tobacco, we have stigma on the product. We don't want people to smoke. We don't think that that's healthy. And I think we need that stigma on drugs. We don't want people to use fentanyl or heroin or methamphetamine um, or, or other illegal drugs. Um, and, and I think that's a slippery slope. And, and sometimes I feel like we've gone a little too far to the point where we're like, well, it's okay to use drugs. Um, I don't, uh, I think any drug use is extremely dangerous. And even before there was a chance of overdosing with your first single use of a drug, like there is now, um, it was always dangerous from the standpoint of developing tolerance and then a problem and then escalating to other drugs that are more potent. Yet at the same time, I also accept the fact that no matter what I think, people are going to use drugs. People have always used drugs. And they will continue to experiment and try to change their state. And so much of the drug use we see at our clinic is these patients also have untreated mental health problems. And they have since they were kids. And they grew up in a household with one or more parent that had a drug problem. So there's a genetic transmission bit there. And they and or they grew up in unstable home environments. So much of drug use that we see is people trying to self-medicate their untreated mental health disorders because they're not able to get good treatment for their bipolar or their PTSD or the trauma they had as an adolescent, you know. So no, I don't condone any drug use. I don't think I, drug use is safe or healthy. Um, but at the same time, if you show up in my clinic, I'm not gonna judge how you got here. All I care about is that you're here in front of me and that you want help and that we have these effective tools uh, to treat your, uh, well, with opioid use disorder, we have incredibly effective tools, yet because of stigma, because of lack of awareness, people don't even know that these things exist. Right now, about 20% of the people who have an opioid use disorder in the United States are getting any of the three FDA-approved medication forms, methadone, buprenorphine, or naltrexone. What other chronic disease in this country that's life-threatening do we only treat 20% of the people? I can't think of one. And I think a lot of that has to do with stigma. And people are scared to speak up because or ask for help because they're worried about being judged. Mm -hmm. And if we don't tell them it's okay to come to treatment and we're not going to judge you and we're going to give you these medications, and a lot of people never will. I, I agree with you for 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 that popula patient population that you're treating, which is also my patient population. You know, I have a person in front of me; they need help. It's not time to uh, lecture, or whatever. It's like understand that this is a medical problem, and we're going to treat it as such. But I also understand the whole population of a substance use disorder and want that to come down. And I think it can come down by reducing supply and by reducing demand. And that's by, on the demand side, is reaching a population that does not use drugs yet or, and hope that they don't by by educating to protect your brain, you know, to um, think about your future, to make uh, smart choices, to understand the risks at a young age. And with that, there's actually, you know, um, 
evidence-based studies Great evidence. that yeah. you have that education at a young age, you know, you know, kindergarten and on, um, you have less addiction, less violence, less bullying, better academic achievement with that type of education. And a I lot agree. of that to do with mental, mental health. Life is hard. And so when you have a problem, um, what can you do about it? Uh, what tools can you use instead of using drugs? And you teach that at a young age. That's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah, I do talks with uh, parents of teenagers and um, adolescents. Um, I'm doing one in Newport Beach uh, next month with a police officer, and and it's it's definitely around this topic, but it's also around you know talking to your kids who are going to try stuff, or maybe your kids don't. They have friends that will, you know. Carrying a drug like, you know, uh, a reversal drug like Clixado, uh, I look at as like, you know, EpiPen for somebody who has uh, anaphylaxis, except you get to save somebody else's life. Uh, 40% of overdoses happen with somebody present. And the idea that if your kid ends up at a party and they're watching somebody suffer an overdose and they're standing helplessly by, that's tremendously, <laughs> that's tremendously damaging probably long-term. So we talk about that stuff, but we also talk about, you know, mental health and signs uh, of your child maybe developing a problem, early intervention. Um, there's a lot of things parents can do if they're aware. And the other thing is if you're talking directly to kids rather than parents, as I've learned from this podcast and the experts that I have here is promoting the social norms. The norm is that most people actually don't use drugs. If you look at the data, most kids, they say, oh, wow. So when you want to promote uh, treatment, we, we we mentioned the big numbers and all the deaths. But if you look at, you know, you know, eighth graders, 10th graders, 12th graders, majority don't use drugs. So we want to promote the social norm and empower that social norm to to, to spread. Um, kind of like we did with with tobacco and other things that we don't want. So oh, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, actually, some parents are worried that if we talk to their them and their kids about carrying an overdose reversal drug, opioid, that that will create a problem that maybe they'll take more risk. Um, but we don't have data to show that's actually the case. But yes, promoting social norms and healthy uh, behaviors is is by far and away an important thing. We've done it very successfully with tobacco education. Right. Um, and you talked about the importance of therapy and mental health and the overlap of mental health and substance use disorder. Do you provide that at your clinic too? Or no, we provide case management uh, and we have referrals to a number of therapists and even um, uh, behavioral treatment programs, both inpatient, IOP, which is an outpatient um virtual uh we have we have lots of resources for patients but we do not have embedded therapists within our clinic have you noticed that patients who take advantage of those resources do better than people who just use the you know monthly injection or or not so the challenge we have with our patients is having them follow through with behavioral treatment um my bias is that if you if you get the medical side of this treated where you know you're you're stabilizing your your cravings your withdrawal you're improving your your um you know neurochemistry as it were right 
that that gives you the bandwidth then to engage in behavioral treatment and to get at why why do you have an underlying use disorder to begin with what are your triggers what are the things that like led you to 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 where you are now you can't do that behavioral part without first stabilizing brain chemistry um, because we know that People that go into residential behavioral treatment programs get detoxed and get abstinence-based treatment. Within three months, most of them will have relapsed. And within one year, 90-something percent of them will have relapsed because the cravings are too strong. So uh, we give the medication, and I advocate always to do the behavioral work uh, because I think that they're additive at that point. But I'd be lying to say that most of our patients follow through with that. They, they mostly don't because it's expensive, it's time consuming. Um, they're having a hard enough time making ends meet as it is. And this is just one more thing. Well, but it's hard, it's not it's easy. It's hard, yeah. But I think they'll do better if uh, long-term if, if they have an understanding for what their triggers are and avoiding them. And cognitive behavioral treatment, I, for somebody who's really trained in CBT, I think is the gold standard, but it's expensive. And again, it's time consuming and hard. And so they don't always follow through. So um, I don't have great data from different groups, you know, to compare. Um, some of our, most of our folks do fine just with the medication and going to some meetings, to be honest with you. Yeah. And you're keeping them alive. I think there are large studies that show the two together have better long-term outcomes, but um, but uh, you're keeping people alive and giving them opportunities to at some point do that at least. Yeah, I think if you, you know, want to one day be not on uh, MAT or, or medications for opioid use disorder, it's possible, but you have to do a lot of work in your personal life. The drug problems cause legal problems, housing problems, financial problems, problems with relationships, everything. And, and you have to get all of that stabilized and be functioning at a high level before you come off these medications. And uh, if you if you're not going to relapse. That's a great tip. Um, other controversies, rehab scams, $70,000 a month. I saw yeah. one of the videos that you do. Um, how, how do people know? It's not just me that does these videos. People like John Oliver do these videos and the whole re business of rehab, $50 billion business in the United States. And most of what they offer is not evidence-based treatment. Um, they, they have shiny bells and whistles. They're by the beach. Sometimes they have equine therapy, all of this crap that doesn't do anything, but they don't offer CBT and they don't offer MAT and they don't believe in MAT because that's trading one drug for another. It is not trading one drug for another. It is the most effective treatment for opioid use disorder. And if you're running a program that doesn't offer state of the art gold standard treatment, you are not offering real treatment. Um, I'm very opinionated about this. And we only work with programs that allow us, do not interfere with our medical team putting patients who want these medications on these medications. And then what they have is a patient who's on the medicines in a program that's getting the behavioral treatment. To me, that's that's as good as it gets. That's the gold standard. In my opinion, yes. Well, how, do, um, how do people know whether they're going to a, a good rehab or a scam rehab? Yeah, that's the problem. Somebody's desperate or parents are de desperate and they start doing some online research and what do they come across? Well, they come across 
Google marketing campaigns that are done by these programs that look good. And then they make a phone call and they get, you know, go to a call center where that person is trained to basically lie to them, to tell them that if you give us your son or daughter or you yourself come in for 30 days, there's a 90% chance you'll be cured from drugs for the rest of your life. Amen. You know, that's how good we are. And that is absolutely not the case. 90 something percent of the time you will relapse if they have not put you on medicine. So my advice is if you have cancer and you go look online, you see UCLA, MD Anderson, Mayo Clinic, you see medical treatment for cancer. You need to find med you need to go online to find medical treatment for your addiction. Start with doctors that are trained in addiction medicine. What programs are they working with? If you call a program, ask, will my son or daughter be on MAT or MOUD? Will they be kept on it? Not just for detox. Do you offer cognitive behavioral uh, therapy with PhD level or master's level people? And if you ask these specific questions, the, they'll, they'll either say, yes, we have that, or they'll be lying to you. <laughs> yeah. There are some uh, organizations, Shatterproof, we've had them on, on the podcast that do certification of programs. Yeah. Um, so insurance won't pay for programs unless they have the proper uh, certification. Um, so there are are some ways, depending on where you live, to find out whether whether you got a good place or a scam. People need to do their homework and ask ask really good questions, um, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, but there are scams out there, so people need to beware. More controversies. What about naloxone versus Cloxado? Both of those medications are, um, or Narcan versus Cloxado. Yeah, I was about to so say, they're both, both naloxone. Them, both of them are naloxone. Uh, one is comes in four milligrams Narcan. The other one comes in eight milligrams Cloxado, right. but really identical identical medications identical. in the same kind of uh, little syringe or yeah, uh, it's this. applicator in, that you put in the nose. The nasal injector that these are identical one, uh, and, for Cloxado and for Narcan. And, and yet, people say, you know, we don't want to support um, the Cloxado because that can cause withdrawal. They're wrong. They all can cause withdrawal. So this is not a controversy in my mind. And a lot of the people that are, are promoting and promulgating misinformation, they're wrong. Here's the truth. Heroin was deadly. Narcan reversed heroin. Fentanyl, illicit fentanyl is 50 times more potent than heroin. Narcan is not as effective at reversing a drug that's 50 times stronger than the one that it was sort of designed to reverse, right? So people are sometimes calling this high-dose naloxone. It's not high-dose. It's twice the dose of Narcan. And it was rapidly approved by the FDA because they realized that, oh, yeah, you have a drug that's so much more potent. And when I say potent, I mean it's harder to reverse, right? But it also will kill you so much faster because... Fentanyl is very lipophilic, meaning it gets right into the brain, onto the receptors, and stops breathing within minutes for most people, right? So we needed a stronger medication, and the one that, that came out most recently and got FDA approval is Cluxado. And Cluxado, they both come two per box, and we have data to show that about two-thirds of the time, a box of Narcan does not do the trick. It will not get somebody breathing again. Whereas Pixado would more likely do that. 
And this isn't just for putting, so one of the arguments is like, well, if somebody's using, you're gonna put them into worse withdrawal, right? And the reality but if is- If you're dead, you won't have the opportunity. Exactly, thank you. If you have permanent brain damage or you're dead, these are relatively non-reversible things. Well, they're not relatively, they are non-reversible things. And I, I know that precipitated withdrawal is uncomfortable, but it's a time-limited discomfort and it's saves your life. It's better than the alternative, which is- It is better than the alternative. And right. when you ask patients, what would you rather have the, the higher dose drug with a higher likelihood of precipitated withdrawal or, a, or the other one, four out of five of them say, I'd rather not be dead, thank you very much. We, in our clinic, we give, we give every patient uh, a box of this. Every single patient, when we order their medication, they get, oh, we also order and hand out Clexato. We also give them the choice of Narcan, and guess what? They're not dumb. They all choose the one that's more likely to save them or save their friends in an overdose. Right. So, well, I mean, it's it's really the same drug. Um, like you say, most people who get Narcan get it twice, right? So you're, and it's the same exact thing as getting Cloxato once. And if you're gonna, if you are in the process of overdosing, which is in the process of dying, mm -hmm. um, the point is to get you into withdrawal. That's the whole point. We want you into withdrawal. We and want we to do anything to get you breathing. Back. Right. <laughs> because every second that goes by, your brain cells are getting zero oxygen and they're dying. Right. And um, I also feel that a lot of um, when you reverse somebody and they feel terrible afterwards, a lot of that has to do with the fact that they were in hypoxic brain injury at the time you got them breathing. And they have a lot of, that has a lot of overlying symptoms with precipitated withdrawal. So it's really hard to tell like what is what. Um, you know what I mean? If you're, if you're hypoxic, you have nausea, you, you have um, um, acidosis, you're, you're, the blood levels of your pH is low. These make you feel terrible as well. The goal is to get somebody breathing at all, by all uh, measures as fast as possible. Um, so that we're reversing this this damage that's occurring. Right, seconds are are is what it takes between life and death. Yeah. Um. So, Dr. Dahimi, uh, what else? We talked about so many different things, the drugs, the controversies. What do you want our listeners to know? Okay, I want everybody to know the entire drug supply is contaminated with fentanyl, and. That is a fact. Uh, you know, in 2021, the fake pills that look identical to a Percocet, an Adderall, or a Xanax had about 40%, uh, according to DEA um, sources, 40% of them were contaminated with enough fentanyl to kill a person. One year later, in 2022, it's 60%. So these pills look identical to the pharmaceutical grade originals. And these are drugs that people commonly abuse. They might have fentanyl in them more than more than half do. For that reason, everybody needs to carry a, a reversal drug. You're not going to save yourself, but you could save another person or your friends. And so this is the sad reality is that if you go to parties and clubs and festivals, uh, please carry um, overdose reversal agent, even if you yourself don't use drugs, because you could save another person. Yep. Um, My car. Huh? You have it in your car. Yeah. I want I want um to raise awareness around the fact that only 20% of people that have an opioid use disorder on any of the three FDA approved 
drugs that treat it, and they all treat it very effectively, uh, 65 to 80% uh, um, effective, which is exactly as good, if not better, than most other chronic diseases we treat. So people need to, to know these medications exist and ask for them, because this is what you meant by decreasing the demand side. If we don't treat you know, the people that have this disorder, then we can expect them to continue using until they die. So if we do what we've done with other uh, major diseases in the country, which is provide treatment and expand treatment to everybody, then the demand part of the equation goes down, right? So there's less demand for these illicit drugs. Um, and then I want people to know that this is this is a medical disorder. We know by looking at people's brain with fMRI and 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 scans that that very quickly you do not have a normal level of dopamine in the places that you need dopamine to function. And these medications help help bring the dopamine levels back up to a, a healthy physiologic level so that people can function and do better. So it's a disease. It's not a moral failing. Yes, people make bad decisions. I, we all make bad decisions. You know, the 300 pound diabetic makes bad decisions, but we don't not treat people and we try to help them make more good decisions. Um, and so I guess those are my major take home messages. And I'm really passionate about those because I want people to know there's hope. That's great. And there, and there is hope. And we know that by uh, looking at Laura, who is so eloquently called um, into the show and, and follows the podcast. Um, um, she's, you know, had adverse childhood events that led her to yes. a lot of addiction, but she uh, got the treatment that she needed and now um, uh, has a beautiful life. And and the more people I meet who are in recovery are just nicer human beings because they've gone through um, yes. um, a hard time of overcome such hurdles um, that they appreciate uh, life um, and, and uh, too are passionate on this subject. And you, um, uh, Dr. Dehaimi, you're so passionate. You speak so well. You could run this podcast. You have all the right talking I, uh, I really thank you. I'm glad that we finally... Uh, got to have this conversation and uh, appreciate all that you do. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I wish your daughter, by the way, uh, the best of luck in, in her residency. That's I'm super, I would do anesthesia again in a, in a heartbeat. So awesome. I have two daughters going into anesthesia. And so you may meet them one day at the um, at of anesthesia. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate the chance to, to share some of our, some of my ideals and talk about our clinic called Miami T Clinic. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to My MAT Clinic. Visit MyMATClinic.com. That's MyMATClinic.com. Com. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths. Mm-hmm.